If you brought your Bible with you, we're going to be in the book of Jeremiah this morning. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 14. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, that scripture will be on the screen behind me when we get to that point. Uh, and if you're joining us online, it'll be on the screen of whatever device you're watching this. Again, that's Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 14. So over the last few weeks, we've been starting this series we're calling Christ and Culture. Uh, looking at the ways that we as Christians can engage the culture around us for Christ, considering how we as followers of Jesus ought to uh, live in a world that is not full of just followers of Jesus, but full of every people from every persuasion, full of good and evil, and how we can be true and honest to our calling to follow Christ whilst also uh, being good and productive members of society. So engaging culture in that way. We started a couple of weeks ago by looking at Paul's words in Colossians 1 uh, of his focus on Jesus as the center of all things, uh, really as the beginning, the center, and the ending of all things. Uh, his, his statement of, of such high esteem towards Christ that, uh, Christ, uh, that all things were created by him, in him, and through him, uh, that he is the point of everything. And so if we are going to do, have any kind of worldview or any kind of approach in which we engage the world around us, uh, Jesus has to be central in all of it, and he has to be the point of all of it. Last week, we looked at what we called Christ against culture, uh, and I'm kind of loosely uh, basing most of this sermon series off of a book by a guy named Richard Niebuhr that was written over a half century ago uh, about engaging Christian culture, engaging culture through a Christian lens, and he had several different approaches that he saw the church using throughout its history. Uh, and one of those was Christ against culture, kind of this uh, very boldly stating that we have a different way of living. Uh, we live ac according to a different set of morals and customs and all of those sorts of things, pointing at different Christians throughout time who would live that way. And we talked about the, the, the good aspect of that, uh, looking at 1 John chapter 2, uh, about how we live called out and separated lives. Uh, and about how we are not supposed to fall in love with the things of this world, uh, but to focus our mind solely on the things of God. Now, we also live in the world, and so we're not so against culture that we act as if we can somehow separate ourselves out from the world. And that's, that's where that approach kind of falls short, uh, that Jesus uh, went into the world. He spent his time around tax collectors and sinners. Uh, he told us to go into the world to make disciples, to love the least of these. Uh, Jesus was known as someone to hang around worldly folk, and so it wouldn't be uh, very Christ-like for us to go hide somewhere all of our lives just to protect ourselves and not engage the world around us. And so the next kind of approach that Niebuhr uses is one that's called the Christ of culture, and it's the opposite extreme. It is the view of some Christians, especially past, you don't see as much of this anymore, uh, but some Christians viewing culture as basically the, the goal of culture eventually rising to the same level of the goal of Christianity. Uh, that if we look to culture in its best forms, it will pull us towards what Christianity is pulling us towards. Uh, that it will help us ascend to the heights uh, to which Christ called us to. Uh, like I say, years ago, this used to be more popular. When I say years ago, I mean like a century ago, uh, in the roaring 20s. And I don't mean the 2020s, I mean the 1920s. Uh, it's a little different now in the roaring 2020s. We don't have such an optimistic view of the culture around us. Uh, but uh, just a real quick thing about the, 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 the way that that culture used to be. In the 1920s, when things were booming, 
uh, especially for those who had money and influence, uh, and they could ignore those who didn't. We can't really in our world because everything is just so readily available now. But then they could ignore those who didn't have much. And so those that were at the, the height uh, of, of the roaring 20s and the boom and everything that was going with it, uh, some Christians that ran in those circles uh, adopted a view of the end of time called post-millennialism. But you don't have to remember this. If you want to, it's interesting. Uh, but basically what post-millennialism teaches is that culture or the world will get better, 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 better until it reaches perfection. Uh, and, and in a way, that's when the millennial reign of Christ will come, is after all of that. And so culture itself, the world itself, will kind of reach this wonderful height. And Christianity, the church, is one of the factors that's causing the world to reach that height. Now, things took a turn for the worst. Now, not too long after the Roaring Twenties, we had the Great Depression, uh, we had world wars, uh, and we've had strife ever since then uh, in our country to varying degrees, with some degrees of respite, but nonetheless, very few people today would adopt that kind of ideology. But I think we can take from this idea of the Christ of culture is how we can see, first, how Christ speaks to us through the culture around us, and how we can use our culture, can use our surroundings, can use the world in order to point people to Christ. One of my favorite things to notice in culture, and I've shared this with you before, is to watch the way that popular media, whether it's literature or movies or comic books, uh, uses Christian themes uh, and sometimes uses what's called the Christ figure. Uh, it's one of the more popular themes within, if you do any kind of literary criticism work or anything like that, having a Christ figure at the center of a story is very common. Um, Superman might be the one that jumps off uh, your mind the most quickly, uh, especially Superman back when Superman was still innocent. I know some things have gotten weird lately uh, in that world, but you know, back in the days when it was just the comic book and Superman was new, if you begin to think about it, you see a lot of Christ themes in the story of Superman. He's an alien from another planet. Uh, he has parents that are otherworldly of a different planet, even though earthly parents are raising him. Uh, he has superhuman powers and the ability to do anything, yet he spends all of his time hanging around normal people uh, and doing what's best for them, taking care of the little guy and using those powers, not to demand power of his own, which he certainly could have done, but instead to help others, especially those who didn't have that power and to protect the world from all the evil forces that would come against it. You see a lot of smacking of Christ elements within that story. Um, those like that are obvious Christ references, but there's some that are less obvious. So I want us to watch one together this morning from what I believe to be the best movie of all time. You can, we can debate about that later. It's called The Shawshank Redemption. Um, a lot of it is, is it's a long movie. Uh, if you watch it and don't like it, forget that I said anything. Uh, but if you watch it and you love it, I'm the one who told you about it. Uh, and if you've already seen it, um, you probably know what I'm talking about. But uh, if we could get that scene, let me, let me set it up first. Um, so Andy Dufresne is the main character in the Shawshank Redemption. Uh, and he is in prison, called the Shawshank uh, Prison, uh, for a crime that he attests that he did not commit. Um, and even though he's in prison for a very long time uh, and in a very, very, very negative situation, it is not a fun place uh, to be in prison if there is such a thing. Uh, he's certainly not in a good spot. Uh, the warden is incredibly corrupt, uh, is murderous himself, doing all sorts of evil things. Plus, there's all sorts of other things going on in the prison that one might imagine. Uh, and so it's not a bright situation, but there's something about Dufresne where he is able to keep this sense of optimism and he is able to bring in such a dark place that sense of optimism with him. 
And so there's this scene where he's been allowed to go into other places because he's the CPA. He does the tax returns for a lot of the, uh, for the guys who work at the prison. And so they give him a little extra leeway and he finds himself in the warden's office one day. Uh, and the guy who's supposed to be watching him goes to the restroom and this is what happens while he's by himself. All right, so there's a preview if you haven't ever seen it. But if you have or if you haven't, I love the beauty of that scene with something as simple as a song. Uh, And these guys who have been in prison for who knows how long, hearing something, probably that none of them would enjoy on their own, an opera song, but hearing something beautiful that for a moment took them out of that gray and drab situation and allowed them to experience freedom. See, in the Shawshank Redemption, we see that Christ figure in Andy Dufresne. He's someone who says that he's innocent of a crime he didn't commit, comes into a very dark place, but while he's in the dark place, he has this group of guys that kind of forms around him, and they end up being this kind of optimistic center of a very negative world. And he has these, there's a couple of other scenes in it that that I think are some of the best in movie history of, of him just bringing in this light in darkness and it changing everyone around him. Uh, especially Red, Morgan Freeman, who narrates the whole thing in their relationship, is, is quite interesting to show how, and we as Christians, ought to be the ones who bring the light into dark places. And so as we think about how we relate to culture, we're from somewhere else, we're from a different place, but here we are in this world. When I say we're from somewhere else, I believe we, I, believe, I, I, I argue that we belong to the kingdom of heaven, uh, that we belong, our citizenship is with God, but we are on this earth for the time being, in this place, to tell other people about the place that is to come. That's what Jeremiah, or God through Jeremiah, does in the text we're going to read this morning. He is writing to the Jews in Babylon. The Jews in Babylon had just been sold by God, had been moved into exile because of their, uh, their disobedience toward God. God had allowed the Babylonians to come into Jerusalem and to take them and lead them back into their country in Babylon. And so Jeremiah the prophet, who was left behind in Jerusalem, writes a letter to them, sends a letter, and they open this letter, and that's what we're about to read. Uh, but as we read this, what I hope that you see is that Christ makes all things better. Even the fallen culture around us, Even the parts of the world that we really don't like and that we really wouldn't ever consider Christian, especially our chaotic and busy world today, is that Christ has the power to make all things better. And so what does that mean about us? Before we read the passage, Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 4, let's pray together one more time. Father, we thank you for being here with us and in our midst this morning. God, we thank you for making yourself available to us. And God, we thank you that despite the darkness around us in our world, despite the chaos of our modern time, God, that you are not only still here, but that you are still at work. And so God, we pause and give you glory and honor and praise and adoration for all the good that you continue to do in a world that is sometimes not anything close to good. God, I pray that you would remove distraction from our heart and mind this morning. God, that you through your Holy Spirit would speak to us using your scripture, God, that you would call us to be that light in the world, and that, God, that you would leave us transformed from the inside out. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 29, starting in verse 4. Again, he has just sent a letter speaking on behalf of God to the people 
in exile in Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat the produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray for the Lord on its behalf Pray in its welfare that you will find your well. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel: Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord: When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So again, God, through the prophet Jeremiah and a letter that he has sent to the exiles in Babylon, sends these words. Now, they're in Babylon because God had allowed that to happen. The text is very clear that it was God's hand at work that allowed them to be cast into Babylon in the first place. Those Jews who were there had sinned against God, had been disobedient towards God in innumerable ways. And he had given them warning after warning through the prophets, and they had failed to heed those warnings. So God finally allowed Babylon, the main world power at the time, at least in that part of the world, to come in to take them over and to take them captive. And now that they've been captive in Babylon for a little while, Jeremiah, the prophet, God speaking through Jeremiah, sends them this letter. And if you're reading through this the first time in anything like me, you might begin to think, okay, the letter is going to be one of resistance, if not outright rebellion. One saying, okay, people, get ready, bide your time. There's going to come a time when you can overthrow these people and we can bring you back to the promised land. Uh, your, your, your time is going to be short. As a matter of fact, uh, the prophets that uh, God says not to listen to uh, in Jeremiah, those are prophets who are saying that your exile is going to be short. You're going to go back home soon. Uh, they were actually the liars. The exile was actually going to take a while. And so God says not to listen to them, even though that's what we would expect to hear in this situation. God planning the downfall of the enemy to get rid of Babylon so that you can go back and be the Jerusalem that you were meant to be. But that's not at all the message that God gives to the prophet Jeremiah. Instead, God says to them, what I want you to do is to build houses and to plant gardens, to make your home there, if you will, to do the things that you would do as long as you were anywhere else. He says to have sons and daughters, to give your sons and daughters away in marriage so that they can have sons and daughters. This, these are commands that are very close to the first thing that God ever commanded of humanity. Back to Adam and Eve when he said to be fruitful and multiply, to go out into the world and have dominion over it. It's the same thing that God said to Noah after the ark landed, to go be fruitful and multiply, to go and extend the human race. And so it's the original calling of mankind to go and use God's creation, to enjoy God's creation and fulfill it, multiply it, and live your life the way that God has always wanted you to live your life. 
In other words, despite everything that's going on, keep doing what you've always been doing. God wants us to enjoy his creation. There are thumbprints all over the world of things that God has done. When you look at a beautiful sunset or stare into a dark, empty night sky with stars that twinkle in the millions, uh, when you experience a loving relationship between uh, a spouse or, or, or with your children or with a parent or just with a really good friend or a church member, uh, when, you, when, you, when you laugh at something funny, all of those things have fingerprints of God on them, and they are things that God has created for our good things that God has given us that will help us give glory back to him. Uh, and so there is nothing wrong with, then, in our culture, enjoying the things that God has given us, of having a good laugh, uh, of, of appreciating the gifts that God has given us. Those of us who have been gifted by God, who have been blessed by God, while we ought to be generous with those gifts and with those blessings, we ought not to ever feel guilty about God blessing us, but find a way to enjoy what God has given us while also being Christ-like and giving with the things that he has given. We ought to enjoy this creation. There is so much in our culture that is worth being enjoyed, whether it's a good film or good music that might not necessarily be Christian. It might be music that you hear on a secular radio station, but the way that the music is put together and someone using their talents to make a beautiful sound, even though they might not realize that that only comes by God giving them that ability and making music make sense, uh, making the logic and the math behind music so beautiful that it does move us. That is from God, and so there's nothing wrong with enjoying creation in that way. Enjoying a pet, enjoying a nice bite of cake, whatever it might be, there is nothing wrong with enjoying God's creation. So that shouldn't be that surprising. That God would say to the prophet, okay, while you're in Babylon, even though it's not your home, go ahead and, and, and make life there and enjoy life there. But where it gets a little surprising would be when he continues on and he says to seek the welfare of that city to seek the welfare of Babylon, the great. Of Babylon, the one who kicked you out of your homeland. Of Babylon, the one who stole your very identity. See, for the Jews, land was identity. It was the place to which God had called them. And as long as they were in the promised land, everything was okay. But when they got removed from the land, they were separated from their identity. Not just because of the land itself, but because of the temple that's set in the middle of that land. They were removed from that central element of their worship with God. And so Babylon, removing them from that, made Babylon their enemy. Yet God says here to those exiled in Babylon, to seek the welfare of the city. To seek the welfare of your culture. In other words, the presence of Christians should always improve the surrounding culture. Even though it might seem antithetical, especially to the Jews, to want what was best for the culture around them, it is what they were called to do. And it is the same for us. We are not called to a worldly existence. We are called to a heavenly existence that is our ultimate home. But while we are on this planet, while we are with our feet firmly planted in foreign land, we have work to do, we have a calling to do, and it is to seek the welfare of our cities. And I'm grateful that we live in a place where I can see the members of our church and other Christians within our community seeking the welfare of the city. 
Christian business owners, Christian servants in, in, in city government, Christian servants on the school board or in school administrators or teachers, Christian servants working in, 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 like I said, in city businesses and other places around us trying to make this community a better place. Because that should be what happens in every place that Christians exist. In every place that Christians exist, life ought to be better for Christian and non-Christian alike. Life ought to improve wherever Christians are. Now, we've missed that, or we're beginning to miss that in our culture because it's becoming very easy for those who are outside of the church to point at the church and say, no, Christians are the liars, the cheaters, the swindlers, because we have had some very high-profile examples of liars, cheaters, and swindlers. And it's very easy to point at people who take the, the train off the rails and go the complete wrong direction with what Christianity ought to be and make it look like something it's not. It's very easy for the world to point at that. But my firm faith and hope and belief is that most of the Christians, most of the church today is still in the business of seeking the welfare of its city. It's still in the business of making the world around them a better place. And so if we really are a town full of believers, if we are an area in the Bible Belt full of believers, there ought to be a difference in everything, even our civil governments. Uh, everything, even the way our businesses do business, because they are led by Christians, ought to change when Christians are there. The prophet says on behalf of God to seek the welfare of your own city. He even says to pray for, your, your, uh, pray for Babylon, to pray for the enemy. The presence of Christians should always improve culture. In verse 7, he says this really pointed phrase. He says, for in Babylon... Its welfare is your welfare. And if you look in the Hebrew, he says, its shalom is your shalom. Which if you're even familiar at all, if you've ever heard that word, you know that's usually in the Jewish world. But shalom, it means peace or wholeness, perfection. It's that, that situation in life where everything is just right. That's shalom. And so what God is saying through the prophets to the people who are exiled in Babylon is to seek that for the city, for that will also give you that same thing. If you want to be at peace, seek peace for your city. If you want to have welfare, seek welfare for your city. If you want things around you to go well, seek the good of those around you to go well. That's what Christians ought to be doing. And, and, and this is true in the spiritual sense, but it's also true in the business, economic, political, every sense that we can imagine. We ought to be engaged in and involved in the world, looking to, through every avenue possible, make this world look more like the kingdom of heaven. And this isn't an idea relegated to the Old Testament. We find it in Jesus' words as well. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus delivers the model prayer, you all know the, the, the Lord's Prayer. In it, he says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This has always been the goal. Now, we know we're not going to come perfect on that goal, that there will come a day when God calls all of us home and he recreates everything as only he can. But as long as we are here, he is calling us to make the kingdom of heaven as much as it can be made here on the kingdom of earth. The presence of Christians should always improve the surrounding culture because you're going to be here a while. You see, when the prophet... God, speaking through the prophet, spoke to the people in exile. He told them to do things that were long-term. Build a house, a place to live. Build a garden and eat the produce. Now, that might not seem like a big thing to us, but that would have been where all of their sustenance would have come from. 
So they would have spent a lot of time and effort in building the perfect garden that would supply their needs throughout the year. God is saying, go ahead and make your home there for a while. And then as if that wasn't enough, he goes ahead and makes it a generational thing. He says, have children. And then when your children get old enough, let them get married too so that they can have children. Because the prophets that are telling you that things are going to go quickly and that you're going to go home soon, that this is all going to be a bad memory very quickly, they're lying to you. The truth is, it's going to be 70 years. Now, scholars don't really know if that's an exact number or a symbolic number. It could be a symbolic number of just a lifetime. I don't really know, but it shows that they were going to be in exile for a long time. In other words, you're going to be there. You might as well do something about it while you're there. You see, our time in this plane of existence, our time in the world is limited. And we all know and firmly believe that because of our faith in Jesus Christ, that when our time in this world comes to an end, that we will experience him in whatever heaven it's going to be like, euphoric, I don't know, all praise and worship all the time. It'll be unlike any feeling that's ever happened before, and it'll be eternal. Nothing that we can imagine. Now, that's what, one of the things I love about reading through the book of Revelation is watching John just try to describe what heaven is like. And you could, he's just grasping at all of these weird analogies, uh, trying to make it sound like normal so that we can understand it. And he's basically trying to explain the inexplicable. Uh, and that's what heaven is going to be like, something we can't exp- understand or explain on this plane how wonderful it's going to be. That's coming someday. Just like the prophet said to the people, one day you're going to go back home. We can count on that if we have our faith firmly founded in Jesus Christ. But this time that we have on earth is limited. And our opportunity to allow the kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven through us is likewise limited. And if we are not careful, we might miss opportunities for the world to be blessed through us. For the culture to have a touchstone with Christ through us. That's one of the reasons why I love movies like The Shawshank Redemption or like The Matrix or others where there's a central figure that just turns the world completely on its head and it begs the people who are watching it to ask that question of themselves. And I believe it's, it's, there's this existential question within, within all of us that asks why I exist, but also asks the question of, is this all there is? I believe that every human being has that built into them. And everyone I've ever talked to who has walked through a conversion experience and placed their faith in Jesus Christ as an adult says that they can look back on a time when they knew that there was something missing. They couldn't explain it. They couldn't name it. Uh, people around them, if they didn't have Christian friends, couldn't name it either. And they just felt like they were in the dark searching for something to meet that need. And that's where so much of the world ills and sinfulness come from. Even within the Christian body, even within the church, when we look elsewhere to try to find the answers to our soul's desire to be complete, is we look to other people to bring completion. We look to things that God has given us that are good things, but that we can turn into addictions to bring completion. We look to power. We look to all sorts of things, money, pride, sex, lust. We look to all of these things to try to make ourselves whole when all that God ever intended was for that to turn us towards him. And those echoes of Christ in culture remind the world you're looking for something and you haven't found it yet. 
but there is something out there that transcends everything. It's like you're stuck in a prison and you have those moments where you hear that beautiful sound. May we, church, be that beautiful sound that says there's something else out there. That while you are longing for a freedom that you cannot express yet in words, let us give you just a taste of it by the way that we treat you, by the way that we show you love, by the way that we worship our God that you just might oversee, by the way that we love each other and that you just might notice. May we be involved in our culture, seeking the good and welfare of our city, the shalom of our world, because we know that there are people who need that same sense of shalom that we do of completeness, of holiness, of perfection, of belonging that our entire world is longing for. And while this is not our home, this world is our residence for now. And as long as we are here, we ought to be seeking the welfare of the city so that we can point to something beyond ourselves, seeking the shalom of our culture, seeking what is best for everyone. When I say that anywhere that Christians are, the world is better, I mean for everyone. I mean for those who have much and for those who have nothing. I mean everyone of every gender. I mean everyone of every race. I mean everyone of every generation. I mean everyone across the board, their life, if they are around true God-loving, Jesus-following Christians, their lives will be improved. And if they are around those God-loving, Jesus-following Christians long enough, they will begin to notice that the peace that they've been looking for is able to be found. That there is an end to their search. And what they have, those Christians out there at work in my workplace, those Christians out there that are raising kids alongside mine at the school that I'm sending them to, those Christians that are out there that I might just bump into, they must have what I've been looking for. That is what Christ in culture looks like. Because, as I said, and as the prophet said to the people in exile, someday we will go home. Someday, just like God said to those in exile, and he fulfilled it to those in exile. He did bring them back to Jerusalem eventually. But for us as well, as we live in an exiled land, knowing that this place is not our home, that we know that while there might be beauty and things that we see, that there's something that this world doesn't have. And that we have an opportunity to experience him in this world and also for eternity in the world to come. And while we rejoice in that and we look forward to that, we look forward to being in the host of saints gathered together, worshiping Christ for eternity. The host of saints that we all know and believe will include members of families and friends that we've seen and lost who have gone on before us. And looking forward to that day when we will be there, when we can, like John at the end of Revelation, say, come quickly. While there is certainly a part of us that can identify with that longing, may we take that longing for the future home, may we take that longing for the future culture, for the future world, and do what we can to inject it into this world. To care for those around us. To seek what is good for our world. To be the movers and shakers of our towns, communities, organizations, pushing the right way. Pushing towards Christ.
And may we, as we do all of it, give glory to him who empowers us to do it so that others, as the gospels say, may see the good works that we do and glorify our Father who is in heaven. This is what Christ in culture looks like. And may we be in culture enough to make that difference. May we be those who seek the welfare of those around us. And may those who are looking for that missing piece see it in the way that we live. During our time of response and worship this morning, if you have never experienced a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, I would love to invite you into that today. I would love to tell you what having such a relationship would mean for you, not just in eternity, but today, and what Christ has for you and how much he loves you. And if you would like to talk about that, I will be down here while we're singing. I'll be down here praying. You can come down and pray with me and talk to me. Or if you would rather, you can hang around until after the service and I'll just be down here at the front and you can come and talk to me while everyone else is leaving. But for those of you who do have a saving faith in Jesus Christ, can I ask you a question? And the question is, how are you or how is God engaging culture through you? How is God pointing people back to himself in the world around us through your testimony? Are you one who seeks the welfare of your city? Are you seeking the shalom of your home, of your school, of your workplace, of your friend group, of your country, and of this world? And if not, how might God call you to do that? Think and pray on this as we worship together one more time. Again, I'll be down here to pray with anyone who would like to pray about this or anything else. I'll hang around after the service as well. If anyone would like to come and kneel at the front and pray at the altar, they can certainly do that at the steps. Uh, you can pray right where you are and sing right where you are as well. Uh, but let's stand together. I'm going to pray while our band comes up. Uh, and as we sing uh, one last song of worship, may you just begin to have that conversation with God and move in whatever way he's calling you to. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your presence here with us this morning. God, we thank you for being a God who cares, who doesn't just leave us to our own devices, but is, is living and active, even in a fallen world around us. God, I pray that, that we as your sons and daughters might have the spiritual eyes to see the way that you work in our culture. God, more importantly, I pray that this group of believers gathered here this morning and joining us with us online, God, that you would ignite something within us. Give us the courage and the encouragement, the plan, whatever we need to go into the world and to seek the welfare of those around us so that we are good works and you, Father in heaven. God, may we point people to you in the world around us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.